Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. I'm giggling because, you know, I've, I've said the title. I've said that intro like so many times. And I think I might have to change it. We read hood classics and good classics and the cartel. Like, I feel like that might need to be there. Um... Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, uh, leave a review on Spotify. So let me make sure I got this straight. When Breeze was telling CJ and uh, Mo that, you know, your name carries weight and uh, your name carries power, so... Don't be worried about being apart from me because your name will keep you protected. She really meant, they really meant that was what's going to happen to her. Because somehow, wherever she is, which is outside of Florida, they've heard of her. Her name carries that weight. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. I'm on my Keisha Cole shit. I'm just ready for it to be over. Chapter 14. CJ's hands flew with such swiftness that he barely felt the sting as they connected with his target. The raw piece of butchered meat hung in the freezer and was a perfect punching bag for a young fighter. You know what else the perfect punching bag? A punching bag. Like, y'all niggas watch Rocky and think that's the way it has to be. No, Rocky was broke, my nigga. Like, Rocky couldn't afford shit, and he was stupid, and it was the 70s, and he couldn't get into a boxing club because nobody believed in him. This nigga CJ's grandfather or paternal figure or whatever they want to call Estes now that he likes him is rich as fuck. Why do you got this nigga tenderizing meat in the freezer, my nigga? Get this nigga a motherfucking punching bag. Estes wanted CJ to get used to the feeling of punching flesh. He had to be desensitized to the feeling, so he didn't hesitate in the pit and allow his opponent to gain the upper hand. Yeah, because punching a slab of meat is the same as punching somebody in that fight club ring that y'all throw these little eight-year-olds into. Sure, yeah, okay. CJ's knuckles were numb to the pain as he punched. Yeah, you said that already. Landing vicious blows. Estes sat back and watched, coaching him, training him to be a prize fighter. CJ might have been young, but that was a plus in Estes' eyes. 
he had a lot of time to develop his skills. CJ was a unique fighter. Not only was he unafraid to go in for the punch, but he was fast on his feet, and his agility made it hard for other fighters to land a punch. He was good at both offense and defense. Estes saw nothing but potential in the young man. When you're in the pit, you're an animal. Nobody can beat you, Estes said as he stood outside the freezer watching CJ train. The determination of this young boy was unbelievable. You got heart, Estes said. That's enough for the day. I can keep going, CJ said, winded, as he continued to fight. He liked the feeling of the adrenaline that coursed through him when he was in the pit. Baraka's face flashed through his mind. He saw Lena's body, his mother's face on the news, the man that had come and split him and Mo up. All his frustrations mounted when he fought, culminating into one huge ball of fury, and when his fists connected, it was the ultimate therapy for him. He fought the things he could do nothing about. Fighting gave him an outlet for the anger and hurt he had built up inside. He hid it well. Even his father never picked up on it when he called. But deep inside, CJ felt like a leaf blowing in the wind. He had no roots. Therefore, he could end up at any place at any time. No place felt like home, oddly enough, until now. Here was Estes, an old man who wasn't particularly happy about CJ's presence, who was the most genuine and consistent person in his life right now. They shared a love for fighting. Now that he had discovered it, he only wanted to be the best. Estes wanted to teach the best and live out his childhood dreams through CJ. It worked out for them both. Estes chuckled. Leave some meat on the bones for another day, Estes said. I'm calling counsel with a few gentlemen. I want you there. You're to be seen, not heard. You want me to set up like last time? CJ asked. No, kid. I want you present. You learn the game by being a part of the game. With hands like yours, you'll never have to live the lifestyle, but it's non-negotiable that you soak up the knowledge. You come from it, so you must know how to deal with it if it ever comes to your door. The tailor will be here in an hour. Go clean up, Esther said sternly. CJ rushed up the stairs. It was hard for him to hide the excitement he felt about the gathering this evening. He was getting on Estes's good side and opening a part of Estes that no one had touched since the death of his son. Even the love he had for his sweet Taryn couldn't fill the hole that had been left in his heart after the murder of his only heir. CJ, with his resilience in the heart of a lion, was warming the ice walls that Estes had built. To be extended the invitation to sit at Estes's table meant that eventually Estes would break bread with him. He was just too young for the task at hand, but CJ knew when the time came, he would step into the game. Carter had always told CJ not to follow in his footsteps, but CJ wanted nothing more than to not only follow, but surpass him. The nigga is eight. He's not thinking none of this shit. He's eight. He's thinking about movies and video games and food cartoons, not wetting the bed. He's eight. My nigga, like, I don't know. I don't know. I know he might be thinking about fighting. Yes, he might like it. He might be interested in it, whatever it may be. Okay, I'll give you that. But he is not thinking about the drug game at the age of eight. Get the fuck out of my face. A knock at the door startled CJ as he pulled a t-shirt over his head. 
He opened the door and stood in astonishment as a team of people flooded into the room. CJ had always seen his father and uncles in thousand dollar suits and shiny shoes. You dress for the position you want, Carter had told him. It was no different on the streets. Just because they weren't corporate didn't mean they didn't aspire to power. Instead of working for that corner office and hanging degrees on their walls, the men of the cartel worked for the throne and hung notches of respect on their belt. They were two different games, but at the end of the day, first impressions mattered. A thin, olive-toned man with hair that was pulled up into a sleek bun entered the room. The crow's feet around his eyes were stressed as he smiled kindly at CJ. He had the shiniest shoes CJ had ever seen. He wore measurer's tape around his neck and barked instructions to the two women who entered the room to assist. You put fresh balls in the suit. Always. Go clean yourself and I'll be prepared when you get out, the man said bluntly. Really? Really? This is how we start off? A tailor saying you put fresh balls in the suit? For real? I've never sat with a tailor, but I'm pretty certain if a tailor said that, I'd be like... And then it would get real awkward from that point. CJ shriveled in embarrassment and the assistant snickered in amusement as he retreated to the bathroom. He washed himself quickly. Too quickly, in fact, because when he exited the shower, Essence was present and shook his head. Back in there, he ordered and nodded towards the bathroom. A man must take pride in his appearance. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Don't rush. Taking Essence's advice more seriously, he took his time the second time around. He emerged in underwear and an undershirt as Estes picked out ties and jackets. He was so particular he picked out the socks. I thought this was just for one night, CJ asked as he looked at all the options. There'll be many nights like this. You'll need an entire wardrobe, Estes said seriously. The ladies will take care of your casual wear once you're sized. Can I wear a red tie? CJ asked. Are you a clown? Estes replied. He normally taught with a sternness that made grown men insecure, but CJ soaked up all the lessons without any hard feelings. Black? CJ said, seeking Estes' approval. Black, Estes confirmed before walking out of the room. CJ stood there for an hour as the tailor and the ladies worked around him. When they were finished, he was sharp in a feather gray Tom Ford suit with a white shirt and gray tie. It was as adventurous in color as they would let him get. It feels too tight, CJ said as he pulled at the collar. It's as it should be, the tailor said. Be still before you catch a pin. You let me do what I do best and just relax. A few more minutes exhausted CJ's patience. He had been through a lot and was mature in a lot of ways, but in that way, he measured up exactly at eight years old. When he finally was permitted to look in the mirror, he felt like a man. His chest swelled with pride and he tried his hardest to contain the smile. Men don't wear their hearts on their sleeves, Carter's words played in his head, and he wished his father could see him now. The party was less inclusive than the first one CJ had attended. Instead of being outside near the beautiful Caribbean Sea that played backyard to the via, it was held inside where a poker table had been set. As CJ entered the room, the scent of tobacco filled his lungs as smoke from freshly rolled Cuban cigars wafted into the air. The ten men sat around the table, focused, silent, as they each eyed their cards. The shiny Ferragamo shoes he wore announced his arrival before he could find his voice. CJ may address the part, 
but he felt like he stuck out like a sore thumb. His discomfort was immeasurable, but his poker face was stronger than any player at the table. Each player had a man standing behind him, a bodyguard, arms folded in front of him, handgun tucked securely in the back of his waistline. Stand behind me. Estes' stern voice boomed and CJ followed suit, his young heart pounding so hard he thought the others could see it through the expensive jacket he wore. A large man with a rotund belly tittered. He reminded CJ of a stuffed pig. He had gotten comfortable and removed his suit jacket, but the buttons on his Oxford shirt beneath were holding on for dear life. His stomach bounced jovially as he continued. That's who you trust with your life? Against all these killers in the room? He bellowed in laughter. He could hold his own, Estes replied. Don't you worry. A little dark for this circle, eh? The man pushed. Estes folded his cards and stared intently across the table. He didn't speak, but his steely gaze burned through the air. Everyone at the table tensed as they waited for him to react. Silence was worse than protest with Estes. CJ didn't realize he was holding his breath until his lungs began to beg him to exhale. I didn't mean to disrespect Estes. The pig conceded. The temperature felt like it had been cranked up to hell, and suddenly... The suit felt like it had shrunk in size. Stand up, Estes said. Emilio, the pig started. Stand, Estes repeated. His tone of voice was calm, but that stare was still so intense. The fat man grunted and scooted his chair back as he threw down his cards and struggled to his feet. He stood and then swept his arms out as to say, What now? CJ, take a seat, Estes said. I, um... I don't know how to play, CJ stammered. I got 50 grand in the pot, Emilio, the pig objected, turning red as anger rose. Then you better hope he plays the cards right, Estes said. You disrespect my grandson in his home. He put the cigar in his mouth and pulled the tobacco smoke into his lungs, holding it until he felt a slight burn. My home. And you expect to keep a seat at this table? The pig wanted to object further but gruffed in displeasure instead as he looked on. Quit your bitching. We're at the river, Estes said, referring to the last card in the game. So, grandson now, huh? Wins a fight, now all of a sudden, okay, I'll take you in, no problem. What have you done for me lately? The cards were nothing more than pictures of CJ. He held them in his hands, sweat forming on his nervous brow as his stomach felt twisted and hollow his mouth dry, and his eyes stinging as if he wanted to cry. He was just starting to get on Estes' good side. If he messed this up, if he made Estes look bad, he'll prove worthless. Is he going to send me back? CJ thought. He could feel the eyes of the other men on him, and he didn't look up. He was too intimidated to look anywhere else except his cards. The most he had played was Tunk, a game he had learned from Mo and the most he had risked were pieces of candy. The sweet goodness had been their pot, and it had been all in fun. The money sitting in the middle of the table made him sick to his stomach. He didn't know the rules to this game, and although he could sometimes outwit his older cousin, there was no way he could beat these men. What happens if I lose? The dealer pulled the last card, and the men went around the table revealing their hands. CJ observed, wide-eyed not knowing what to expect next. When it was his turn, he set the cards on the green velvet tabletop. He was the last to go.
I'll be damned, Esther said. CJ's eyes rose in worry as the men laughed around him. Suddenly, he felt the pig wrap his arms around him. This kid is worth something. The man was jovial as he realized CJ was holding three of a kind. It was a decent hand and enough to take the pot. Ha! He exclaimed in disbelief. I understand why you keep him around. In the pits. At the card table. He's good luck. Estes sat back in his seat. That's the kid's seat. The kid's hand. The kid's pot. Estes said. The man released CJ and slammed both hands onto the table. It's the price you pay for disrespect, Estes said. Unless you'd like to cover it the other way. The threat came out so effortlessly the CJ almost missed it. But the way the gruff man's eyes widened in dread couldn't be lost. The other players remained silent, not wanting to get in the middle of Estes' affairs as everyone waited for the pig to respond. Nostrils flared, ire flickered in the big man's eyes, but he didn't dare protest. The man snatched up his suit jacket from the back of the chair CJ sat in and stormed out. Estes didn't even turn to watch him leave. He had enough guards positioned throughout the via that there was no need to worry. He always made sure his safety was accounted for, even when amongst those he trusted. Estes nodded to the pot. It's yours. We'll establish a Swiss for you in the morning, Estes said. CJ nodded, and even though his thoughts were, what's a Swiss, he dared not ask. Estes motioned for one of his men to come clear the pot and said, let's deal. CJ stood, not one to endure the agonizing uncertainty of another round. Can I be excused? Estes nodded, already engrossed in the new cards he was receiving. CJ hurried from the room, seeking solace, seeking relief from the tension and inquisitive eyes of Estes' comrades. He rushed outside into the darkness and enveloped the secluded via. His fingers pulled at the necktie he wore, releasing the tightness as he took a deep breath of relief. Everything in Estes' world was high stakes, and the pressure of living up to its expectations was heavy. Perhaps if he was truly blood, if they shared relation through a deeper connection, CJ wouldn't feel the need to do everything right. But they weren't truly family. They were affiliates, and CJ wanted to keep his spot as Estes' adopted mentee or project or whatever bond it was they were forming. CJ simply didn't want to disappoint he would rather live up to the hopes of Estes than to be thrust back into the hands of someone like Miss Bernice, or God forbid, much worse. He wanted to stay in this world, where kings played, even if he literally had to fight to belong. The sound of someone exiting caused him to sneak off to the side of the front entrance, hiding out of sight. He wasn't ready to be summoned back inside just yet. The respite of the ocean air and the full moon was relaxing to CJ. The stakes were too high inside. He wanted to be where it was easy for a little while. He peered out from behind the bush to gave him coverage. The big man from the card game came storming out with another gentleman traveling behind him. CJ recognized him from the table as well. He wasn't hard to remember. The long ponytail he wore secured by a rubber band and braided down his back made him stand out amongst the crowd. Javier, CJ thought, finally placing a name to the man whose money he had taken. Javier, cool it, Ponytail whispered. I'm going to kill him, Javier replied. He might as well have been breathing fire, he was so irate. His eyes fumed with venom. Who the fuck does he think he is? Take a walk, the Ponytail advised. 
you're going to fuck up everything we have planned. The son of a bitch is living on borrowed time. Estes' days are numbered. I'm going to slit his throat from ear to ear and then burn this place to the fucking ground. Javier's words were so harsh to CJ recoiled. And that little nigger boy he has in there will be on his knees. What the fuck? Who thinks of this shit? Well, I know who thinks of this shit. I'm just saying it because I'm disappointed in y'all motherfuckers. And that little nigger boy he has in there will be on his knees, sucking me off where he belongs. I'm Chris Hansen, nasty motherfuckers like y'all thought this shit. The nerve of Estes to sit that black motherfucker in my seat. He'll pay for this. In due time, my friend, the ponytail responded. For now, go home. Sleep it off. We just have to be patient until the time comes. Also, if you're really his friend, you should be like, dude, that's fucking gross. And I can't fucking kick it with you when you're talking like that. I know you're upset, and that's fine. Emotions are okay. But what you're not going to do is threaten the safety of a little boy like that. Like, that's just... You're, per, you're, you're perverted. That's pedophilic. And I don't fuck with that. So cut that shit out. CJ watched in horror as the men went their separate ways. One going back in the house and the other getting into the town car that awaited him. He had become privy to a plot to assassinate Estes. There was no way he could let Estes sit amongst his enemies. He raced back inside where he collided with Estes. He didn't realize he was shaking until he noticed Estes' bent brow of concern. Everything okay, kid? Estes asked. CJ opened his mouth to speak, but halted when the man with the long ponytail came up behind Estes. The man gave Estes a pat on the back. CJ's heart raced and pounded loudly in his ears. Should I say something? Do I tell him right now? CJ's thoughts were running wild. He might not even believe me. I'm calling it a night. Appreciate the hospitality as always, Estes. CJ's mouth was open to speak, but the words were caught in a roadblock in his throat. Say something. Hurry. He'll be gone soon, CJ urged himself, but the fear of repercussion in the face of the man he would be accusing stopped him. Kid? Estes called as he turned to walk away. CJ looked at the man who was sliding into a suit jacket by the front door, and then back to Estes, who was preparing to head back to the game. He's planning to kill you. I heard him and the other man, the one who stormed out, talking about it outside, CJ revealed. Estes watched the man walk out the door, and CJ looked at him, stunned. Aren't you going to do something? You don't let the prey know that they're prey, kid. You play dumb until it's time for you to move smart. You did good, CJ, Estes said. Estes put an arm around CJ's shoulder and guided him back to the card game. And fix your tie. Don't even look over there. Act like we ain't tripping. The next few days, Potna came up missing. E-40. It's not in this book or anything. I don't want y'all to think they're quoting E-40. I just, you know. CJ was roused out of his sleep as Estes opened the bedroom door, spilling fluorescent light into the darkened space. He wiped the sleep from his eyes as he looked up the hazy image of Estes standing in the doorway. Get up and meet me downstairs, Estes said, his baritone voice stern and serious. CJ climbed for the bed without hesitating, clueless as to why he was being pulled from his peaceful slumber at this hour. Am I in trouble? He thought. Did I do something wrong? He couldn't help but wonder what was so pressing that he could not wait until the morning. It was uncustomary for Estes to break CJ's rest. 
especially when he was due to train the next morning. Estes met him at the front door. Even at this odd hour, he was pulled together with nothing less than perfection. CJ looked down at himself in uncertainty, but didn't have time to second guess as Estes was already headed towards the driver that waited out front. Silence seemed to be the standards they rode through the darkness, up towards the mountains. The Dominican Republic was a beautiful island where multiple ecosystems coexisted. Estes resided beachside where crystal clear water washed up onto the shore in his backyard, but there were also jungles and dry areas that resembled deserts. As the car snaked around sharp curves, CJ discovered that it held mountains as well. The elevation mixed with the darkness made him cringe with every turn, but Estes sat cool and unbothered, as if they weren't at risk of falling to their deaths at all. When they arrived at the top, they drove a few more miles away from civilization and into a dense forested area. Where are we? CJ asked. He swallowed a lump in his throat. He noticed another town car and silently wondered who else was there. His gut was going haywire. There was danger in this darkness. There was death clinging in the air. Estes didn't answer. He simply exited the car and let the door open, signaling CJ to follow. He froze mid-step when he saw the men he had overheard plotting Estes' death the night before. Hell of a place to meet, Estes. What is this about? The pig might as well have had a snout. The way he spoke sounded more like snorting as he complained. It's about disloyalty, Estes said. CJ was still frozen. His fear was paralyzing him, making it hard to even squeeze in breaths of the thick, humid air. We could take care of that for you, of course. But do we have to do it all the way up here? The fat man snorted as he tried to laugh off the seriousness of the situation. Who is it? I'll bet it's that rat bastard Chavez. You said a word and I'll handle him personally. Estes stood stoically and raised his hand casually, signaling. And just like that, red beams appeared on the chests of both men. I've shown the two of you how to build empires for the past two decades, have I not? He posed. Do they mean posited? Like, posited is a question. Posing is posing. Like, I don't know. The men looked down at the threat that lingered over the left sides of their chests. Emilio! The fat man pleaded as he put his hands up. What is this? We're like family. I would never. Only you did, Estes shot back. He nodded to the other man. The both of you conspired to kill me, Estes said. What did they say they would do again? Estes looked at CJ. CJ's throat was dry as sandpaper, but he couldn't back down. Not in front of Estes, not when it counted. Slit your throat from ear to ear, CJ offered. His voice shook, but he was grateful that the words came out at all. Estes, this all a misunderstanding, Ponytail said, trying to keep things diplomatic. You're right, Estes answered. I would never understand how two men whom I fed for years, whose wives and children I fed for years, could go against me in this way. You dug your own grave, so you will take your own lives. Walk. The men looked over their shoulders to the dark cliffs in the near distance. Estes! Their pleas fell on deaf ears and a content mind. Once Estes came to a decision, there was no changing things. They shuffled their feet backwards until their heels were on the edge of a thousand foot drop off. CJ knew it took a lot to make grown men cry. The stench of death had these men sobbing as they beseeched Estes for mercy. It had been a long time since he had put in this type of work. 
Estes' resume was lengthy, and he was respected off name alone. These gentlemen have forgotten how unforgiving Estes could be. He was about to remind them. CJ tried to comprehend what was happening right in front of him. Is he? He can't, CJ thought. Surely Estes wouldn't make these men throw themselves off the top of this mountain. Is he going to kill them right here? You know the penalty for disloyalty. Nothing short of death. Not just any death. This death. In this way. You could pay for your disloyalty and walk off this cliff with your pride, or I can give the signal to my men and end it with a bullet. The bullet doesn't save your family, however. If you choose that option, the death continues to your namesake. Again, the choice is yours. It was an old Dominican ritual amongst gangsters. The Devil's Cliff was the highest ridge on the island. A man could die with honor by selling his sin to the devil and taking the plunge, or he could die by the gun. These two wouldn't be the first or the last to fall victim. Devil's Cliff, huh? I looked that up and Google said that was a lie. Their feet shuffled nervously as a strong wind gust almost made the decision for them. Estes, por favor no hace esto. The fat man held no shame as he got on his knees, begging Estes for forgiveness. You don't have to do this, he kept saying, in broken Spanish from the tears the wind stopped flowing. Estes lifted his foot without hesitation and kicked the man backwards, sending him falling unexpectedly over the edge of the cliff. The scream was so loud and fear-filled that it made CJ close his eyes. It echoed out over the night, but the drop to the bottom was so long that the sound faded the farther he fell. Ponytail looked in fear as Estes motioned for his driver to pull the trigger. The shot exploded in the air and sent flash to the day he had been taken by Baraka's men into CJ's mind. Anytime he heard a gunshot, it brought up the unpleasant memories. The bullet hit Ponytail in the center of his forehead, and his body went limp, falling over into the abyss. There was no sound this time. No screams could be heard, and Estes turned away from the scene unaffected as he headed back to the car. CJ crept to the edge and watched the turbulent ocean waters below. The ocean had served as a graveyard to the dead and made the bodies disappear instantly. It was like it had never even happened at all. A chill swept up CJ's spine as the dizzying heights made him stumble. CJ, let's go, Estes called. CJ turned and rushed to the car, not truly feeling safe until he was inside. An awkward silence filled the air. CJ was locked inside with a killer. He knew his family had a long relationship with the streets and that they lived by the gun, but being up close and personal with murder always made him feel weird. A part of him felt fear, but the other part, the parts of him that were made up of Mia Moore Holly, felt intrigue. He was conflicted over what had just occurred. Does it scare you? Killing people? CJ asked reluctantly once they were tucked away and on the descent down the hill. No, Esther said with a simple reply. Is that what you feel? Fear? Right now after seeing that? Estes returned. CJ thought about his emotions. He assessed the pit in his stomach and the hole in his heart. I feel bad, I guess. It feels like it'll come back to me one day, CJ said honestly. What I do to people matters. It's not like the pit. The kids I beat walk away at the end. This is final. Once you did it, it was forever. Smart kid. You're highly intelligent, Estes said. That feeling you have, 
that sickness that's telling you to throw up right now, it means you're one of the good ones. I no longer have that feeling. You hold on to that as long as you can, but never be afraid of what you must do when another man disrespects you. Once someone threatens you or the lives of someone you hold dear, they must be eliminated. Do you understand? CJ nodded as he sank into the plush leather interior. He couldn't get the screams out of his head. He stared out the window, noticeably shaken by complexities that an eight-year-old boy should never have to consider. Life with Estes would change him. It would harden him. But CJ oddly was looking forward to becoming a man under Estes' watch. Witnessing the power, the influence, and the wisdom Estes had intrigued CJ and only made him want to live the lifestyle even more. There was a hunger in his belly that he hadn't known when he was with his parents. They gave him too much, made him earn too little. Mia Moore and Carter had been so focused on making sure he led a life of privilege that they forgot to instill that dog's instinct that made you fight your way to the top. CJ didn't know what the bottom felt like, but with Estes, there was always the threat of losing it all, so he worked hard to keep everything Estes offered. Their bond, although unconventional, was growing by the day, and Estes was not only grooming a fighter, but a gangster, and more than that, bringing out the killer instinct inside. He's eight. When you talk about them giving him the world and giving him privilege and all that, he's eight. Like, what age do you think kids should start suffering for what they need? Tell me. Like, seriously. What age do you think kids need that discipline so then they can eat something or be able to be clothed or be able to be looked at as a contemporary or as a person? What age? Because he's eight. Here we go. Chapter 15. Three years later. So what you're telling me is that Carter has been not thinking about his son for three years or hadn't looked to find his son for three years and uh, Mo has just been in jail for three years living his life with Joey and Breeze has been the queen of the pen for three years and we really haven't heard much from Mia Moore but she's three years in and now CJ is 11 and he's been living with Essence for three years. Okay. Bree sat across from her nephew, completely torn up inside. She tried hard not to show the disappointment that was in her eyes because it wasn't Mo who had let her down. None of this was his fault. It took a village to raise children, and their village had failed not only him, but her daughter and CJ as well. Three years had passed and Mo had grown from a young boy to a young man. He was 15 years old and he loomed over her. His muscular frame a result of endless days of discipline. He wasn't a kid anymore, but a young, handsome man, and with his hair grown out long and wild, he looked so much like her brother Mecca. The sight of him made goosebumps appear on her forearms. It was like someone had put her in a time machine, and she was looking at her brother, alive and breathing. The resemblance was uncanny. Hell, he might be Mecca's son. Lord knows Lena popped that thing for both of them, Breeze thought. Seeing him here, caged like an animal, paying for sins that were not his own, was like salt on an open wound. Don't look so sad, Aunt B. I'm good in here. I'm holding it down, Mo said, his voice deeper than she remembered. He had turned into a man on her. She had missed so much. I'm glad you out. You came back for us just like you said you would. I was always coming back, Mo. I love you. I love CJ, too. I'm so sorry this happened, Bree said. Wait, so Breeze is 
of course she's out. But what we're never going to hear about is any of the stuff she did while she was queen of the cell block. The newfound power she had. Nothing at all. Okay, cool, cool. Because, you know, fuck Breeze, right? Like, she gets this power. Let's not have her be in any place where she's in a place of power or circumstance. Outside of her family in the drug game. Three years later. Alright, whatever. I was always coming back, Mo. I love you. I love CJ, too. I'm so sorry this happened, Bree said. The mention of CJ hit a nerve with Mo, and his expression grew grim. You know where he is? Mo asked. I don't. Not yet, but I'm going to find him. I'm here for you. I'll get a job, and I'll put money on your books. Whatever you need. You hear me? You don't have to worry about me, Aunt B. I get by, Mo said. Three years feels like a lifetime, Bree said, growing misty. I'm going to rebuild this family, brick by brick. When you finally come home, you'll walk out of here to a kingdom, I promise you. Mo stood to his feet. I gotta get back, he said. You take care of yourself, Aunt B. You too, baby boy, Breeze answered. They hugged for a long time, and Breeze was afraid to let him go. It was a reunion, but somehow it felt like a goodbye as Breeze watched him walk into the custody of the guards. Her family was torn apart and scattered everywhere. She didn't have a clue how to locate all the pieces, let alone put them back together. Mo couldn't be saved right now. He was stuck in the system for at least the next four years. Frustrated, Bree stormed out. If her father could see the state of their family, he would be so disappointed. She shook her head in disgrace as she rushed out, not wanting to miss the next bus. Life after lockup was completely different for Bree's. She didn't have access to money, her own place, or even her own car. The illusion of prison had made her forget how hard her reality would be after her release. Life had humbled her. She was so low that the crawl back to the top seemed impossible. As she emerged out on the city street, she saw the bus pulling away from the corner. Breeze took off running. Wait, she shouted as she sprinted full speed. She thanked God for the traffic light at the corner. If she missed this bus, she would never be able to make it downtown in time to see the social worker about her daughter. She banged her hand against the side of the bus, calling, wait. Finally getting the driver's attention, she slid on, panting as she slipped the driver to fare before finding a seat. The characters around her came from all walks of life, and as Breeze sat, she found herself wondering if she would have ever crossed paths with these people in her prior life. Everything had always been done at the highest level. Before their empire had come crumbling down, Breeze would have never even paid attention to the ways of these common people. She hadn't lived a regular life before, but now she was thrust in the middle of one, trying to make sense of it all. She had walked through a world with privilege that had blinded her to the struggles of the real world. Everything with Breeze had always been so high stakes. Kidnapping, murder, revenge, war. Those are the type of problems her family had faced over the years. Money had never been an issue, and making a dollar out of 15 cents was something Breeze was not equipped to do. Not many things frightened her, but figuring out how to make her own way was terrifying. I have to contact Carter as soon as possible, she thought. She knew that he would know what to do. He always knows. I just want to break in there real quick and just remind everybody out there that she has seen the troubles of these common people. Because she was literally in Haiti when they had an earthquake. 
And so she was amongst the common people looking for food and water after being trapped in a house underneath rubble for three days, nearing death. Then she was sex trafficked. Remember these things that happened? Remember? Pepper's farm remembers, motherfuckers. Breeze was so distracted by her thoughts that she almost missed her stop. She pulled the cord, signaling to the driver to pull over. She hopped off the bus and rushed across the street, sliding into the social services office just before the security guard locked the door. They stopped seeing clients at 445, the security guard called after her. Breeze ignored him and stepped onto the elevator. There was no way she was coming back another day. She had waited three long years for this and she wanted to get back to Aurora as quickly as she could. I've already missed so much free time with her, Breeze thought. Each gulp of free air that she breathed felt wrong without her daughter. Excuse me, I'm here to see Bernice. Bernice? Miss Bernice? <sighs> Excuse me, I'm here to see Bernice Jackson, Breeze said as she stood in front of the receptionist's desk. Do you have an appointment? The lady asked. She looked at the wall of employees. The smiling faces of the women and men gave her hope. They look friendly enough, which means they won't be. They were there to help mothers like Breeze. She scanned the wall until she found Bernice's picture. This woman was the one who could reunite her with her baby. Ma'am, the receptionist called. Breeze turned back towards the desk. Uh, no, I don't have an appointment, but it's important that I see her today. It's an emergency. Every woman who comes in here has an emergency situation, ma'am. Without an appointment, you won't be able to see a caseworker. They literally... Put emergent, not emergency. Okay. Please, Breeze whispered. I just need a few minutes of her time. I'm sorry. You have to make an appointment, the woman replied. Breeze's frustration mounted as she placed both hands on the counter. I'm not leaving here until I see her, she insisted. She was so close to getting her daughter back, but still so far away. Ma'am, do I need to call security? Now, I told you what you need to do to see Miss Jackson. You can call whoever you want, but I'm not leaving here until I see her, Bree said sternly. You do not want to be the one to stand between me and my daughter. I've waited too long for this moment to let some bitch behind a desk try and stop me. Really, Breeze? This is where we're going to get help? For real? You're calling people bitches, huh? Okay. Is there a problem? Breeze looked at the woman who had rushed in after hearing the commotion. Miss Jackson? Breeze recognized her. Please, I know you're ready to get off work, but... Please just hear me out. My daughter Aurora and my nephew CJ. I'm trying to find them. Please. Yep, it's her. Has to be. Fuck. The color drained from the woman's face. And she looked as if she had seen a ghost. She hadn't heard CJ's name since the day Esther to snatch him from her house. And she had hoped those past bones would stay buried. I tried to tell her to make an appointment. Bernice looked at Breeze in fear. Unsure if this was another family member there to deliver a message. Bernice dreaded the day that Estes knocked on her door again. Afraid to decline the meeting, Bernice shook her head. No, I'll take her now. Bree sighed in relief. Come on back, Bernice invited as she held open the door. My office is this way. Breeze took the woman in, frowning as she noticed her disfigured left hand. She only had three fingers, and Breeze found it hard to stop staring. Breeze followed her to the corner office. Take a seat. My name is Breeze Diamond. I know who you are, 
Bernice said, her voice shaking. Please, I don't want any trouble. Breeze frowned. Damn, just the name alone puts fear in people, Breeze thought. She was clueless as to the reason why Bernice was shaking so hard. I'm just here for information, Breeze said, trying to sweeten her tone to calm the woman's rattled nerves. Your nephews are Carter Jones and Monroe Diamond. Your daughter's Aurora Rich. I know your case well, and I followed it since it fell on my desk three years ago. I'm very sorry about what happened to your nephews. I tried to help CJ after Monroe was sentenced. I fostered CJ, but a man named Emilio Estes came for him. He, um, he insisted that I let him take him. I haven't heard from CJ since. I hoped I wouldn't. I, I've changed my life. I really don't want any trouble, Bernice stammered, stumbling over the words her eyes misted. Estes? Breeze asked with hope in her voice. She had no idea where her grandfather was, but she remembered giving the order to Shitburger to find him. The fallout from Mia Moore's arrest had sent both Estes and Carter into a hole. He was here in the States? Why would he show up on this woman's doorstep? Why was fear so present in this woman's eyes? Yes, he came to my home, Bernice answered. How long ago was this? Breeze asked. Three years ago. At least CJ's with family, Breeze thought as she sighed in relief. It was one less thing she had to worry about. I'm almost willing to bet that Estes took him back to the Dominican Republic. As soon as I get my hands on my baby, I can go be with him, Breeze thought. Where's my daughter? I need to get her back, Breeze said. Bernice rummaged through a stack of files that sat atop her desk. She opened a manila folder and read it quietly before responding. It looks like she's placed with a foster family. Who? Where? Breeze asked. I'm home now. I want her back. There's a process. You're at a halfway house, I assume. How long did they order you to remain there? Bernice asked. Three months, Breeze replied. You can't bring children there. Once you're out, you must prove that you can take care of her. You must have taxable income and a place of your own. As Bernice spoke, Breeze felt her frustrations rise. She's mine. She belongs with me. I shouldn't have to prove anything. They took her from me and I did my time. Now you're sitting here telling me I have to jump through the hoops to get her back. It's just the way the system's built, Bernice said apologetically. I can't even see my daughter? Breeze's lips trembled as she posed the question. I'm afraid not, Bernice said. Breeze leaned over in the chair as sorrow filled her. It filled her up so high that she felt like she would drown in it. She wiped away the tears she tried her hardest to hold in. Prison had taught her not to show weakness, and she was embarrassed that she was becoming unhinged in front of this woman. When did prison teach her that? Before she swallowed the razor blade or after she had a breakdown in front of the nurse so then she could hold Aurora and name her in the first place? Also, they put her name on the birth certificate? They put the name she suggested? And not Jane Doe? Like, she wasn't supposed to be there around the baby officially. She wasn't there to put a name on a birth certificate. When did this happen? Okay, I'm just saying, I know without a shadow of a doubt that they usually will do the birth certificate right before the baby gets discharged. So, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Social services took her and was like, hey, is her mom here anywhere? We need a name. We need a name. What can we do? I'm so sorry, Bernice extended. I can help you find employment and help get you a place. And as soon as you're in a position where the courts will grant you custody, I'll expedite the paperwork. But that's all the power I have over the situation. I swear. I'll give you a glowing recommendation. Just please, 
Breeze frowned. What did Estes do to this woman? In the meantime, you just have to be patient. You have to let the system work, Bernice concluded. Is she safe at least? Breeze whispered. According to the reports, she's just fine, Bernice said. Her words did little to reassure Breeze. She's not fine. She's with strangers. She isn't with me. Nothing is fine. Everything about this is wrong, she thought. She was pained to her core. Being locked up and away from Aurora was one thing, but being free and still not being able to get to her baby was a torture that made her want to die. Here's my card, Bernice said. Breeze accepted it. You call me, and I'll do whatever I can to help you get readjusted so that a judge will grant you custody of your child. Please let Estes know that I don't want any trouble. Breeze nodded and stood as Bernice walked her towards the front. Before Breeze exited, she said, I left my wallet. She backtracked and looked down the hall to make sure no one was coming before she flipped open the file she had seen Bernice open. 1128 West Dorchester, Breeze whispered. She hurried and exited the building, practically blowing by Bernice on her way out. 1128 West Dorchester, 1128 West Dorchester, Bernice should lose her job like six different times. It took Breeze an hour and two bus transfers to get to the address. She stood across the street from the house, waiting, watching. It took her a while to work up the nerve to walk up to the door. She rang the doorbell and shifted nervously. A door opened and Breeze froze. Nurse Steph? A little girl in a bright blue dress ran up and wrapped herself around Steph's leg. Mommy! Hearing Aurora call another woman mommy was like a punch to the gut. It knocked the wind out of her. Hello, Breeze, Steph greeted. Breeze could see her reluctance as Steph stood guarding the doorframe. Aurora, go watch cartoons in your room, okay, sweetheart? The little girl took off, yelling jovially. Breeze's heart leapt with every inflection of Aurora's voice. Are you going to let me in? Breeze asked. You're not supposed to be here, Steph said. What are you talking about? Breeze asked. Of course I am. You have my daughter. She's mine. Please, you have to let me see her. I'm not asking. Steph sighed and Breeze walked in uninvited. On one hand, Breeze was thankful that Steph had taken her daughter. As she looked around the neat house, it seemed that Steph was providing a good life for Aurora. There were pictures of the two of them displayed on the mantel and jealousy seared Breeze. I asked you to take her that day at the hospital. You told me no, Breeze started. It, it didn't feel right to let someone else take her. I applied to be her foster mother, Steph explained. Does she know about me? Breeze asked. No, I didn't know how to explain it to her, Steph whispered. You didn't know how to explain it, or you didn't want to? Breeze asked. The look of guilt that crossed Steph's face enraged Breeze. I want to hate you right now, but the smile on her face in these pictures is what's holding me back. You've taken care of her and kept her out of the hands of people who may hurt her. I don't even want to think of what she might have gone through if you hadn't taken her in, but I'm out now, and I want my daughter back. Go get my baby. Breeze. Go get her! Breeze shouted. The shouting summoned Aurora from her room. Mommy, why are you screaming? I'm not beautiful, Steph said. Breeze froze and bent down. Hi, Aurora, she stammered, her words coming out with pangs of emotion. Come here, baby, she coaxed as Aurora walked slowly towards her. When she was within arm's reach, Breeze reached down and reached out her hand. 
When Aurora's tiny hand was safely in hers, Breeze felt a current of energy pass between them. It was the same feeling Breeze felt when she first held her in the hospital. It was like a gift, one that God had wrapped up in this beautiful little girl and delivered to Breeze. Hi, Aurora replied. Her voice was so small. She's shy, Breeze thought. She doesn't know me. Breeze pulled Aurora into her arms and sobbed as she hugged her. Why are you crying? Aurora asked. Her sweet tone sounded like music to Breeze's ears. Breeze sniffled as she pulled back. These are happy tears. I'm so happy to be here with you, Breeze said. What's your name? Aurora asked. Breeze looked back at Steph and then stood to her feet. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know how to make sense of the confusion. Steph was the only mother that Aurora knew. It would break her heart to learn something new, but there was no way the Breeze could let this charade continue. She picked up her daughter. What's your name? Breeze countered. Aurora Diamond. That's right. My name is Breeze Diamond, Breeze said sweetly. Don't, Steph interrupted. Mommy, she has the same name as me, Aurora exclaimed in excitement. Breeze, you need to leave, Steph said. You can't just take her. You must go in front of a judge. She needs stability. She needs me, Breeze said sternly. Don't stand here and tell me what my daughter needs. She needs me, Breeze whispered. I'm her mother. Breeze didn't know who she was trying to convince more, Steph or herself, but seeing her daughter happy with someone other than her was heartbreaking. From her prison cell, Breeze had pictured Aurora just as miserable as she had been. She had told herself her daughter was lost without a connection to her, but it looked as if she was flourishing just fine without Breeze. She was grateful that Aurora was in good hands, but it didn't stop the sting of jealousy from hurting all the same. Aurora felt so right in her arms, so comfortable, so good. Let me tell you something, sweetheart. Look me in my eyes, Breeze said. The reason why we have the same last name is because I'm your mommy. I'm your real mommy. Steph is my friend and she took care of you for me while you were a baby because I had to go away for a little while. I missed you every single day, though. I thought about you every second. Now that I'm back, we're going to be together really, really soon. I promise you. I'm going to get us a big castle and you're going to have a big playroom filled with toys. You're my mommy, Aurora asked. That's right, and don't you forget it, Bree said as she planted a kiss on Aurora's forehead. You can't do this. I'm calling the police, Steph said. No need to, Bree said. She put Aurora down. I'll be back for you, she told Aurora. She approached Steph and stood closely to her, so Aurora wouldn't overhear her next words. The only reason I'm leaving her here is because I want to do this right. I don't want to be on the run with my baby. I want to be her mom, the right way. Dead that mommy shit with my kid. You're not her mother. I appreciate what you've done for her, and as promised, you'll be compensated for that. But I'm going to go to court, and I'm going to get custody of her. After that, your services will no longer be needed. If you try to run with my daughter, I will kill you. I'm going to have someone sitting on your house 24-7, making sure you don't get any bright ideas. If he even thinks you're moving wrong, I'll give the order to have you executed, Breeze said. I don't want it to come to that, but it can if you push me there. Do not play games with my daughter. With a reluctant heart, Breeze turned back towards her child. She wanted to take her so badly. She wanted to risk it all and just snatch her out of Steph's possession right now, but she knew she couldn't.
She never wanted to put herself in a position to be away from Aurora again, and if she handled this the wrong way, she will be sent right back to prison. Breeze took a deep breath and gazed lovingly at her daughter, then walked out the door. Every step she took made her sick to her stomach. You didn't come this far to fuck up now. It's not like she's in danger. She's being taken care of. This is her home for now. This isn't a war that I can win with my name. I have to be a mother. I have to do what's best for her, even if it hurts me. I'll transition her slowly, and once we're back together, I'll make sure no one ever separates us again. So, Steph never got her son back, huh? Mom was still like, you know what? I'm not here for it. Interesting. Also, Zaire, three years later, still not in the picture, huh? Still just, we're not talking about him at all? Okay, cool, 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 cool. So, again, these are three years we can't get back, so we can't find out what anybody else did except in quick little cutscenes. But bottom line is that Carter was not looking for his son at any point. And Carter's... Um, trips to the Dominican Republic that he was talking about making never actually bared any fruit with him and Estes, I guess. Estes. Okay. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. It takes like 13 seconds. Uh, leave a review on uh Pod Chaser, copy and paste that in the good pods, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. You could also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. And on the good pods app, there's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.